For several days now, Russia has appeared ready to invade Ukraine. With the threat of a major war breaking out in Europe, what is America's stake in this crisis? How should we evaluate Americans' foreign policy towards Russia and this crisis in particular? And what are the philosophic ideas underlying this situation currently going on? Welcome to New Idea Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. I'm Agustina Vergara-Sierra, junior fellow at ARI, and with me is Elan Giorno, a senior fellow at ARI. Welcome, Elan. Hi. So, Elan, let's get uh, right into it. So, we have been seeing uh, reports of the situation in the Ukraine for weeks now, and it's making headlines basically every day for the last uh, couple of weeks. So, can you summarize for us what is going on with the situation? Yeah, I think since uh, before the start of the new year, there have been signs that Russia is massing troops all around Ukraine. You can see on the map here, we've shown you the green is Ukraine and the lighter green are parts of Ukraine that Russia already has either annexed or occupied in a previous conflict some years ago. And I'll get back to that in a few minutes. So this has been building for some weeks now. There is a real fear, I think, that if Russia rolls in and invades Ukraine, a lot of people will lose their lives. This is going to be a fierce conflict. It's not clear what's going to happen. I was checking the news headlines just before we started this conversation, and it, 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 there's news that Russia has given signals it's going to pull back, but there's no evidence that it has. Some efforts have been made by various countries to find a diplomatic solution. I don't know if that's going to work out, but there's there's really a lot of fear. Countries are telling their citizens who are in Ukraine to leave because they can't be sure that they're going to be safe. Embassies are being emptied. So there's real preparation for uh, significant conflict here. So you mentioned there have been uh, some diplomatic efforts to possibly avoid this invasion. What are some of the things that have been done so far? I think the most recent one that people might have heard about is the uh, leader of France, Emmanuel Macron, went and had a conversation with Vladimir Putin, tried to convince him this is not a good idea. Why don't you stop? We, we can talk about this. I, I don't think it went the way uh, Macron hoped it would be. I think it was embarrassing for him in the end that he went and groveled before Putin. And I think there, there's been additional efforts by American diplomats as well. And this is something that has happened in the last few weeks. There was an exchange of letters between the US and its allies and Russia, Russia stating its demands and expectations. And from all the accounts I've read, I haven't seen these documents. I don't think they've been released. The, the demands from Russia were really outrageous and not something anyone would take seriously. So it's, it's deadlocked at the level of would anything happen at that level. Uh, and, I, and I think you can understand people's what, the appeal of a diplomatic solution. You can avoid bloodshed and find a peaceful remedy. But I think there's, there's a real question here if this is something that Putin would be open to. So as you mentioned just now, and we have also been seeing this in the headlines quite a bit, of, uh, there's been some involvement uh, from the US government in the crisis so far. But how should we actually think about this conflict? And more broadly, how should we think about American foreign policy in general? Yeah, I think that's an important question. So I, to me, that's the central question when thinking about this is what is America's stake here? And how, how do we define that? Because I think a lot of times 
when you read accounts of this and commentary and advice that people give, it's often in the background. We know what our American interests are. Well, let's just let's talk about the details of how to implement them. And I would argue that's often not true. It's not clear what America's interests are. People operate with confused notions of what American interests are. It's a difficult thing to, to identify. And I think that's part of what would be useful to do in this conversation is to identify what does it look like to conceptualize our interests in foreign policy and then apply it in this particular case. And I, I think one of the issues that is dropped out of conversations about foreign policy is the moral framework that needs to come in here. And it's, it's worth talking a bit about how we approach this. So we're coming to this issue from the perspective of a, a developed philosophic system, Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism, which has a lot to say about how to conduct an individual life, how to conduct what, what a good society looks like and what political system uh, needs to look like for it to be compatible with the, uh, freedom and, and the, the conditions that individuals need to succeed in their life. So we're coming to this from that framework and it's worth spelling out a bit what that looks like because I think it gives real substance to what, what are the considerations that go into defining one's interests and then a nation's interests in the concept, context of a foreign crisis like this. Um, so, I mean, if, if, if that's the direction we should go in, let's, let's dig into that. Does it sound good? Yes, uh, so I wanted to ask you how this moral framework informs your view of this crisis and what is at stake uh, for America here? Sure, so I mean, the useful thing to, to start with is Ayn Rand's conception of morality, which is central to her approach to political issues. And that is that morality is about defining how to live your own life and what that looks like and how to achieve your own happiness. And a good society is one that leaves you free to pursue your own goals and happiness by the best judgment you have, your rational judgment. So that leads to a whole conception of a political system that is defined by a government that it, it, its main and only function, its fundamental function is to leave you free and protect your freedom, your individual rights. And that's not the kind of society we have right now. We have a mixture of controls and freedom, but the important thing is to get that that's the principle that should define it. And I think that's how we approach these situations. So the essential from that perspective of what a foreign policy uh, would try to accomplish is to, to protect the individual rights of Americans. That's the, that's the exclusive definition of what is in American interest. It's the government's role is to protect us domestically from criminals and, and, and uh, threats to our property and life. And then that extends into foreign policy. It's the same idea, the same principle. You, it's, it's there to protect us from foreign threats to our lives and property. And that in effect is when you add up the individuals and all of them having the same right of being left alone, that's basically what America's interests in foreign policy amount to, is it being left free from foreign aggression. And so the, then you develop policies towards different countries based on what you think of them. And then you, you prevent conflicts, you deter them, you defeat them in, in extreme cases when that becomes a real threat. The, an important piece of this that uh, in much thinking about foreign policy doesn't get brought up is the part about thinking about the nature of other countries you're dealing with. So understanding what threats are and how to deal with them. And I, what I mean by that is it's not 
can do, do people recognize what a threat is? I think that's fairly straightforward in many cases. Someone's aiming a gun at you, someone's pointing tanks in your direction, that's a threat. But there are many steps up to and, and before that to understand what is this country you're dealing with? How should, what kind of relationship should you have with it before it gets to the point where you're having you know, the threat of war or something like that? So there's a lot of thinking that needs to be done about the character, the moral character of other states, other regimes that you're facing. And again, that flows from the same moral premise of what is a good society. And on the objectivist perspective, it's one that leaves individuals free. That's the standard by which you measure other regimes, just as it's the standard by which you want this country to live up to. And that's, that's a big piece of what it means to conceptualize your interest with respect to other nations. You have to evaluate them, you have to judge them objectively as, with the best evidence you can, and then figure that into what you define as your approach to them and not ignore warning signs and certainly not pretend that they're not there. So to, just to sum it up, so you, you, the basic goal in, in a, a rational approach to foreign policy, one defined by this moral framework, is to protect the individual rights of Americans. That's the, the basic function of a government's policy towards others, other countries. And then integral to that, a major part of that is continually thinking about the, the nature and character of other regimes that we deal with, because they're not state, they're not static, they change. Countries can become better, they can go worse, and, and that changes over time. So those are the two things I think are important in terms of framing the conversation. Uh, we can build on that if you want. Yeah, so uh, I want to come back to that in a second because I want to know how to apply that moral framework to this particular conflict that is currently going on with Russia and Ukraine. But before we do that, I think we should get a little bit more uh, facts on the table about what's actually happening. Uh, so what is at issue in this conflict? So what is what are some of the things that uh, Russia is demanding and what some of the history behind this, this conflict that has researched just now. I agree. I think it's useful to put some of that on, on the table and thinking about because one of the observations I've had in thinking about foreign policy in, in various contexts is it's something that people think about when there's a crisis, but not from day to day when there isn't a crisis. So that a lot of this falls into the background. So it's good to bring it and foreground some of this material. So what is Putin demanding? So Vladimir Putin, the leader of Russia, is I think you can boil it down to one basic claim, which is, or, or two related claims. One is that Ukraine really is not a separate independent state. It doesn't have any sovereignty. It's really just a part of Russia. The people there are, are integral to Russia. There's just one country. He doesn't, there's a statement he made in 20, 2008 saying, Ukraine is not even a real state, and he regards the Russians and the Ukrainians as basically a single whole, a single people. So from his perspective, why is there even a border? Why is there a separate country? Why is there a separate leadership for Ukraine? That, from his perspective, that's nonsense. And related to that, because he doesn't think it has an independent status, it shouldn't have one, he's, he's insisting that Ukraine be prohibited or, or disallowed entry into an alliance called NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which started during the Cold War. And his, he's demanding that number, Ukraine not be allowed in. And on top of that, that whatever NATO troops or far Western country troops are in 
Eastern Europe, they'd be pulled out of countries that used to be part of the Soviet Union. So there are various countries that broke away when the Soviet Union collapsed and that uh, there'd be no foreign troops and certainly no nuclear weapons stationed at any of those places. So his perspective is that NATO is a threat to Russia and he certainly doesn't want Ukraine to become part of NATO. And he's, he want th those are two of his key demands. Uh, so there's, there's a lot to unpack here. Uh, one is when, what kind of leader is Putin? And we should dig into that because can you take any of these claims seriously? Are they seriously in the sense that they're sincere, not that he, he's gonna stick with them. And what to make of the claims that Ukraine is not a sovereign country, what goes into sovereignty, what, uh, what kind of standing is involved there. And then another one is what about NATO? We should come back to all of these, I hope, if we have time in the conversation. But, but those are some of the claims that Putin is making. Uh, and where the conflict, one of the points of conflict is that the entry conditions for NATO are, if you can meet our basic requirements, you can apply to join. There's, it's what they call it an open door policy. Basically, if you're aligned with, with a market economy as they describe it, and you're basically free as a society, and you are, have the same interests as we do in terms of uh, deterring foreign threats, it's a bit outdated because NATO was arose in the context of the Soviet Union as the major threat, but nevertheless, that's, it's still around. If you have these conditions, you can come and apply for membership. And then if there's a unanimity among the existing members, you can join. And since uh, the fall of the Soviet Union, a number of countries have joined NATO that used to be part of the Soviet Union. So this is something that, that has happened. So NATO and countries leading NATO, I think their attitude is, well, why would we shut the door to Ukraine? What, what, what would be the reason for that? We have an open door policy. This doesn't make any sense to us. Uh, so, so the, you know, there's a lot of friction around that. But the, I think the wider perspective to take here is to rethink more about Putin and his claims and who is he, what kind of regime does he run, how should one evaluate those? And I think that would be help us gain clarity about well, what should America's approach to this be, how should they evaluate these claims, and so on. Yes. Um... So did you want to talk a bit about the, the facts of like how this regime is a, a one of the worst violators of human rights in the world, basically? Or uh, how do you, do you want to give us more yeah, context about that? Yeah, let's talk a bit about Russia and then connect that to the, con the, the context of what America's interests really amount to in this context. So yeah, as you were suggesting, Russia, it's not a happy place to be if you're, <laughs> it's not the place that you would want to, if you really value your life and freedom, Russia is not a hospitable country. It's, I think it's moved more and more towards authoritarianism. And it, I think it's bordering on dictatorship now under Putin. And, and Putin has presided over this transition. So I think there's the early Putin years in the early 2000s, and then the last 10, 15 years have, have been marked by a, a, uh, an acceleration of his, Putin getting more and more power. So one of the things he's done is he was uh, um, the leader and then he had to step down because of a term limit and he put someone else in his place. Then he stepped back in and sort of bypassed the term limit. And then he's trying to change the law to allow himself to stay leader forever. 
because that's the sort of mm -hmm. leader he is. He wants to, to remain in power as long as he wants to. So this is a real contempt for the idea of government as a representative body. I think elections in Russia are a joke. I don't think they really mean anything. They're tightly controlled. A glance at Russia will tell you that this is a, a country that really has, th there's no place for freedom of speech. There's no place for criticism of the government. There have been numerous people who've been uh, critical and, uh, and in small ways, I think, that you would regard as, well, if you made that kind of comment about Biden or Trump when they're in power, nothing would happen to you here. But in Russia, it's a serious business. You get thrown in jail. And there are a lot of notorious cases of uh, what you might call dissidents uh, against the regime, people who are dis disaffected with it and want a better regime. They want freedom or more freedom than they have right now. They don't want to live under Putin's yoke. Just getting jailed or, or in some cases, you know, high profile uh, people who left the regime have been poisoned or thrown in jail, beaten up. Journalists certainly don't operate with any serious freedom. A lot of them have been punished for exposing corruption to a massive scale. So this is really a country run by Putin and a small number of super wealthy people who gain their wealth through access to political power. They're called, the, the name that they, has been applied to them is oligarchs. But another way to think of them is they're just members of Putin's gang who've been able to profit off the, the various industries that are controlled through a whole web of government uh, and private uh, uh, connections. So this is, Putin is leading an authoritarian slash dictatorial regime. And the other important thing to get here, and I think this is characteristics of regime that go in this direction, they have, they develop ambitions for gaining more territory, gaining more people under their control, uh, uh, subjugating other people. So it's no, it shouldn't be surprising we're talking about Ukraine being threatened by Russian invasion because as, I indicated earlier in the conversation, Ukraine was invaded previously. In 2014, Russia went in and, and annexed a big part of what was Ukraine. It's an area called Crimea. And Russia has annexed it, taking it over, declaring that it is now Russian controlled. I don't think that is a legitimate step it took. And then there are parts of Eastern Ukraine that Russia took over and occupies. And then it's been fomenting conflict. There's an ending conflict there now between people who don't want the Russians there, and then the Russians and the people that the Russians are backing. So Russia is, is in um, pulling the strings behind some of these so-called separatists. So what you have is a regime that has ambitions for greater control. And, and people have often pointed out that Putin, when the Soviet Union collapsed, saw that as a tragedy. So I think his heart was broken when the Soviet Union and its whole empire of uh, various countries that were under its dominion fell apart. And he, th there's supposition and evidence to think that this is something that he wants to revive, not under a communist flag, but under the, the flag of Putin's Russia, the, the great kind of national identity that he's trying to cultivate in that country. So there's a evidence for Putin seeking to revive a new kind of empire under Russian flag with Putin now going after Ukraine as one step in that direction. So this is the kind of regime that we're dealing with. And I think it's important that that be rethought about. This is an authoritarian dictatorial regime with territorial ambitions. And 
people have called him a bully, and I think that's a gross understatement. This is a brutal, brutal fascistic leadership, and this is a danger to the countries near it. And it's, it's something that if you were in Europe and you were living in any of these countries near Russia or, or connected to it with significant trade, you would need to be thinking really hard about what Putin's doing and, and thinking about what your policy should be towards Putin. Uh, and I think that's what people in Ukraine now are thinking, well, this, we're really in a crisis here because this is what you get when you have a leader that has an, uh, this desire for conquest, I think is a way to, to view it. So that's where we are with Russia, this kind of country it is. That's a very small sketch of what Russia is. We could talk for, we, we actually were talking about doing another conversation just about Russia since the fall of communism. I think it'd be a fascinating uh, exploration, but th that's enough to, to put on the table that in thinking about American interests here, a major thing you would have to think about is, well, this is the nature of Russia. This is Putin. Is this a legitimate regime? How do you treat a regime like this? Should you be surprised that it is warlike and imperialistic in the sense of trying to conquer others and dominate them? I don't think any of those should be surprising. And I think you would have to evaluate it very harshly if you were taking a moral perspective on this. And I think that's part of what we are, would be good to, to unfold here. Yes, so we've talked about the facts of what's going on, the nature, uh, we barely scratched the surface, like you said, about the nature of the Russian regime. And earlier we were talking about this moral framework that should inform American foreign policy uh, more broadly. And so now let's talk about how we apply that moral framework to this particular crisis. And earlier when explaining that moral framework, you uh, explained that a very important part of, of it is uh, judging the character of the countries that we deal with. So I'm particularly interested in hearing about that. Yeah, so I think one way to, to hold this as a shorthand is if you take a, a rational moral framework seriously, if you take the objectivist perspective seriously, you, you think morality should color foreign policy, and I think that's true, then one way to to hold it is you have to make and recognize the difference between free countries and various forms of tyranny or dictatorship and what you so that's a that's a fundamental moral divide there's if, if it is it all approaching freedom that's the side you want to take and value because there's something good happening there and anything that is calculated towards controlling people moving towards more and more uh, totalitarian control, that's clearly going in the wrong direction. So you, if you have that kind of dis, di, moral distinction, then you would look at a conflict like this and you would say, okay, well, we have a handle on what Putin's Russia is. It's, it's moving towards greater controls, more and more dictatorial. It's more imperialistic. And, and what that means to, to unpack imperialistic, I, by that I just mean that it is willing and eager to use military force to conquer others and, and subjugate them. And that's, that's an evil, that initiating force against others is evil. The, the only proper use of force by a government is in, in retaliation against force, so domestically against criminals and, and against foreign threats. And there's no rational basis for thinking that Ukraine is anything like a threat to Russia, nor is there any reason to think NATO is a threat to Russia. So it's, it's completely trumped up and uh, invented, it's a fantastical position. So that you have R Putin's Russia on one side, which is an aggressor. And then you look at Ukraine, 
This is a country that's going through a lot of difficult times, partly because it's, you know, since the end of the Soviet era, it's tried to move towards a more democratic, towards more European and Western system of government. And I think it is moving in that direction and it is much freer compared to Putin's Russia. Is it really, really free? Is it as free as it is here in California or uh, in other parts of the United States or in, even in, in places like the UK or France? No, I think the real problems with Ukraine's government, but I think it, it's moving in the right direction or at least it's trying to move in the right direction. So it has aspects where there's some attempt to establish representative government there's some attempt to recognize freedom of speech. It's not well done. I mean, from the things I've read, there are real problems with how they implement these laws. And so it's, you, it, you can't ignore those things. Those are relevant factors. But if you, if you essentialize your evaluation of Ukraine, it's much better, I think, than, than Russia. It's, it's moving towards, or it's closer to, it's actually trying to move towards greater freedom. And, and right now, when you look at various polls, the majority, overwhelming majority of people living in Ukraine want to become more European. They want to become part of Europe. They want to get more freedom. And when they had uh, a leader who was more interested in pulling, pulling them towards Putin's orbit, they rebelled against him. They pushed him out of power. They really did not want to go back towards Putin's authoritarian regime. So when you understand that aspect of Ukraine, Certainly not a perfectly free society, but it's, it's better than Russia. And in this context, I think it has a claim to sovereignty for sure. There's no question about that. And in the conflict with Russia, I think it's in the right. I mean, the, the Ukrainians are right not to want to live under Russia. They're right to want their independence from Russia. And they're right to want to move towards a more Western form of government. So to me, that's, a, that's part of thinking about the two sides in this conflict who has more of a moral claim to their position and that should color your view of what America's stake here is. And I think our stake as a wide principle is where people are trying to achieve freedom, we should endorse that, we should support them morally. And that's a good thing. The more free people are free in the world, the better it is for them, the better it is for us uh, indirectly through trade and other kinds of progress. And the, it's a bad thing when people fall under subjugation, like what the, of the kind that Putin is trying to implement. So when you take this perspective of free versus unfree as a, as a basic dividing line, and you try to apply that to the different countries, you have to understand the details of their particular uh, political situation. I think you can make a distinction here between Ukraine and Russia, and you can take a side. And I think our loyalties should be more aligned with Ukraine and certainly not with, with Putin. Uh, and I think that when people face up against a tyrant like this, they, there's a lot of, uh, there's an underappreciated role for moral sanction, for endorsing what they're doing, for giving them courage and, and encouraging them in what they're doing. Uh, that, that's just something that, uh, and, and America isn't well-placed to do that. I mean, a lot of countries look, a lot of people look to us as a beacon of freedom. I think there's something good and right about that, even if we don't always live up to that principle, but I think we, we certainly embody it in fundamental ways. So to me, that's an important part of thinking about this conflict. And when you then ask, you might ask then, what do you do with that? <laughs> so you can tell apart who's, who's in the right and who's in the wrong here. I think then the question is, well, what is America's interest more particularly? And I would say, it's the, our interest is not 
to the point where any American lives or property are directly threatened by this impending war that Russia is about to launch or threatening to launch. And the, I don't think it is appropriate for America to become involved in this conflict militarily. Certainly not. There's no stake in that respect. But then the question is, well, do you just sit back and let things happen? Are you indifferent to the consequences of what Putin's going to do? And I think the answer to that is no. So it's not, it can't be the case that the only options are we send American troops and they fight alongside the Ukrainians. I think that is certainly not appropriate, not in our interests. Absolutely is not. But the, it, the alternative can't be do nothing. Because if you care about freedom as a principle, if you care about the attempts of individuals in various parts of the world to, to advance their lives and, and work towards greater freedom, then I think you should endorse them. And I think you should support them. And there's lots of ways you can do that. I've, I've suggested that giving them moral sanction is a big part of it. I think in a context like this, another thing America could be doing is helping the Ukrainian government with its military. You give them intelligence support, you could sell them weapons, you could provide them all sorts of things that would put them in a better position to defend themselves. I think that's appropriate. I mean, we should be selling weapons to regimes that we think are good, as opposed to selling them to all kinds of regimes. And we, we actually do bad things and sell weapons to regimes that shouldn't be getting our weapons. So if we're going to do that, we might as well be consistent and support those who deserve it. And say publicly, I think part of speaking out isn't just secretly sending messages to the people resisting Putin, it's to be public about it, it's to use our platform on the world stage and morally denounce Putin, which we have not done, and morally endorse the people standing up to him. And that has a lot of power. I think both in terms of making an aggressor and a, and a, uh, a tyrant like Putin step back and, and, and be, become ashamed and fearful uh, and, and giving courage to those who are opposing him. I think that is a significant thing that we should be doing. Um, one other thing I, I just occurred to me that I didn't mention um, that's relevant in thinking about our interests here. So those are the key things I think are, are, are important. Understanding whose side you might should align with and two, what kind of what are some of the concrete things you might do in support of that side. There's one other thing, when we were talking about Putin's regime and what it was like, we, I said we were just scratching the surface. One other thing that is relevant for thinking about our interests here is that Putin is not the only uh, tyrant and, and di dictatorial uh, land seeking and power grabbing type uh, bad guy on the, on the world stage. He, in a certain way, he's a life support system for a bunch of other dictators around the world who are either hostile to us or have malign goals or could become so in, in various contexts. So Russia, as some people know, if they, they follow this sort of issue, Russia has been propping up the dictator in Syria for the last uh, decade or so in the context of the civil war. This is Bashar al-Assad and I Iran, another regime that Russia has been supporting. Iran, as we should talk about this in another context, Iran has been a significant threat to the United States for many years and a, and a menace, I should say, uh, inflicting harm on American, uh, American civilians and, and, and military personnel. And a, and a major organ of Islamist uh, terrorism around the world. And then a country you know more about than I do, but Venezuela has gained support from Putin over many years. And you can tell us a bit about Venezuela. It's certainly no, uh, no Eden. No, yes, that's for sure. And uh, 
Venezuela has actually turned to turn out to be very similar to what we just described about Russia. And there's a lot to say about how it got there. Again, it's worth of an entirely separate podcast to talk about it. But leaving aside how they got there in the illegitimate way that uh, that Maduro got into power uh, and still holds power to this day, today Venezuela, like it's it's a dictatorship it there are no free elections there are there's no rule of law extrajudicial executions happen extremely often uh in 2020 reportedly 2000 people were killed in extrajudicial executions under the excuse of you know they they put trump up charges like they were resisting authority and things like that uh there are there's arbitrary detention no access to justice no way for people when they're detained, they, they deny the basic rights that they should have for due process to, to be able to defend themselves. Um, and there are, there's a huge amount of prisoners of conscience because the Venezuelan uh, regime does not tolerate dissent. And so any activist that uh, does any sort of activity to raise awareness about the evils of this, uh, of, of this regime or tries to uh, get people together to try and change things, well, they go straight to jail and uh, without any sort of way to defend themselves. Sometimes they have trials, but they're like more like mock trials, really. It doesn't add up to anything that would resemble uh, a fair trial at all. And of course, it's, well, freedom of speech, non-existent attacks on journalists. The, they, the government sends gangs to physically harm, sometimes kill journalists. Uh, and not to mention the fact that because of the horrific uh, dictatorship that's going on there and the horrific uh, government regulations that uh, the Maduro regime has put in place, uh, over 96% of the Venezuelan population is in, in what's called income poverty. They are poor and even like a 70 something percent cannot afford the basic products to live their lives, like food to live uh, their lives every day. So it's really a horrific regime Russia is propping Venezuela up and covering for them. And like you said, does the same with all these evil regimes, like literally a coalition of evil that's going on with Russia being the leader here. Yeah, I think another way to think of what Putin is doing, he is a the tip of a spear of a rise in authoritarianism. I think he, part of his agenda, we haven't talked a bit about, we haven't talked much about Putin's sort of own domestic context and the, the, some of the motivations he has for, from that perspective. But I think part of what's going on with him is he's trying to show that free countries can't manage their own affairs and that he's trying to sow disarray. That's partly why I think Russians interfered in the US elections in 2016 and they tried to interfere in the elections of a lot of other countries, not only the US, and this is well known in Europe, the various countries have moved to paper voting because they're afraid of Russian hacking. So this is a real thing. Russian has, Russia has been trying to sow discord and chaos in different countries. I think the rationale for that is, to, is for Putin to be able to say, look at all these Western countries. They have a lot more freedom, but look at all the chaos and, and, and look how they, they have riots and, and uh, all sorts of problems we don't. So aren't you happy that you have uh, you know, he wouldn't put it this way, but in effect, you have you're being taken care of by Great Mother Russia, or the steward of that idea 
uh, Putin, I myself, I'm going to lead you with a strong hand. So you don't have to live in chaos. You don't have to live in cultural decay. And we can have the kind of social values that we think are important. And so I think in, in being a supporter of dictatorial regimes, it's another way to sow chaos and destabilize the world and cause havoc. And the more he does that, the more he can point to free societies and say, yeah, they're failing. Do you want to live in a failed society? No, of course not. Stay here and, and, and stop complaining about the things that I do. I think that's part of what is animating him. And that's part of why I think he's supportive of other dictatorial regimes. There are, there are other things going on there that doesn't, it's not the exhaustive explanation, but I think it's a relevant factor that has to be uh, considered here. And, and it goes into how you would think about Putin more generally, not just in the context of the Ukraine crisis. So uh, we have talked about um, this, this context of uh, the Ukraine and, and Russia and how we should evaluate Russia, right? And, uh, and we have also talked about what we should do if we uh, were to honor a true American foreign policy. But the true American foreign policy in the way that you were describing it with its appropriate moral framework is not what we have been seeing in the last several years uh, in the US and across several administrations, Republican and, Demo and Democrat. So America's approach to Russia has been far from, from, from ideal and far from this foreign policy that you were describing. So can you tell us more about uh, what the approach to Russia has been in the last several years? Absolutely, it has been the opposite of an appropriate approach, the opposite of the ideal. And far, far from what any kind of reasonable approach would look like. If you were to sum it up just as a headline, I think you would, the through line or the theme of it is a major part of what you would identify in America's approach is that it's short range, unthinking, haphazard, and fundamentally amoral in the sense that it doesn't take moral considerations seriously, doesn't take moral judgment seriously. So let me give some concretes. The, the most recent example that people might recall is uh, Donald Trump, who was very favorable to Vladimir Putin. And I think that surprised a lot of people that the president of the United States would admire Putin. He called him a, a bright and very talented man, uh, all the while deflecting criticism of Putin's brutality. So there's a famous interview, I think, I forget it was who, who conducted the interview, but it was one of these uh, uh, primetime shows. And, uh, someone asked him, well, doesn't Putin kill people? And, and Donald Trump's reaction was, well, don't you think there are people who get, who get killed here too? What's, you know, what's, your, what's the big deal? Like there, there's real problems here too. So there's this idea of he's not that bad. Um, and of course, it's, it's important to say that uh, Donald Trump's administration did impose sanctions on Russia. And so there was an attempt to, to respond to Russia's uh, various uh, malign action. But I don't think they went nearly far enough in terms of acknowledging the kind of leadership that Russia has. And it's contradicted when our own president really admires Putin and wishes people responded to him as they do to Putin. So there's a real, there was a real tension there. So I think you can say it's completely inconsistent, both in putting sanctions and then endorsing him. Uh, go further back. So one of the famous episodes with... Uh, Barack Obama was that 
Putin during, uh, I think it was 2008, so around the time at the end of the Bush administration, just as Obama was starting to come into power, Russia had invaded Georgia. And it's a complicated story about what happened there. But I don't think once you untangle it, you can come out and say, yes, Russia was in the right. I don't think that's true. I think there's different things going on, but I don't think it was, yes, Russia was right to invade Georgia. Uh, and what you would expect there is, well, shouldn't that be some significant factor in how we think of Russia? Shouldn't that affect our approach to Russia? Well, the, the way it was processed by the Obama administration was, well, what we really need to do here is get beyond it. And even though Russia is moving more and more towards authoritarianism, silencing more and more dissenting voices, even though it's invaded Georgia, and even though there was an invasion of Ukraine in 2014 during the Obama administration, the whole focus of the administration towards Russia was to reset things and start afresh. Let's turn over a new leaf. There's a famous reset policy. That didn't really go very well, as you might imagine. And I think anyone surprised that it didn't go well should rethink their assumptions. Go even a step back, so George W. Bush, so you get this on different sides. You get the Republican president, you get a Democrat president. Go back to George W. Bush. One of his famous statements when he met Putin, they, they spent some time together in the early 2000s, he said he looked into Putin's eyes and he got a sense of the man's soul. And he said, I could do business with him. He's straightforward, he's trustworthy. And now obviously that was very quickly, he was very quickly disabused of that because he was continually frustrated that Putin was not straightforward, he was not trustworthy, and he was doing exactly the opposite of what you would expect someone like that to do. So there's a real fantasy element in the approach that uh, the Bush administration took towards Russia. And yet th throughout this time, the, there's no real attempt to grapple with the fact that, no, you, you didn't look into his soul, you're deluding yourself, he's not trustworthy. All the evidence that if you care to look at would tell you this person has gained immense power and wealth through corruption and through theft and through using government force against his own people, that all should factor into how you view him. He's not a, a leader who has risen to power through peaceful means and through uh, legitimate political processes. He, he's someone who's trying to become a dictator and you can see this across time. So none of that really factored in. And we get this theme of, uh, confused, to call it a policy is really charitable. And I think it, it's drained of all moral evaluation. I mean, not serious moral evaluation. They say things and they have rhetoric about how this is unacceptable and, and so forth, but it doesn't remotely reflect a, a genuine concern with what is true and what is right and wrong. And the operating assumption, I think if you distill it in the, the, the approach America's had up till now is, okay, yeah, there are problems, with Russia, but we can get along. We can find a path through this. We can reset things. We can shake hands. We can admire each other. And you know, if there's there's always some way that we can find a compromise approach. And I, I think when you look at a dictatorial regime and you have that premise, you're really living in a world of make-believe because that is not at all how it works when you're dealing with people who live by force. And I think that it should not be surprising now, given the reactions to the invasion of Georgia, the invasion of Ukraine, and all of the interference the Russians have been conducting in various countries, and Russia's 
accelerating slide towards greater totalitarian control, all of that should should make you think, well, why are we surprised he's, he's poised to invade Ukraine or threatening to invade Ukraine right now? And today's the February 16th. There was a people were speculating that it might happen today. Who knows when it might happen, if it happens at all. But there should be no surprise that this is where Russia is. It's been emboldened by a, a ridiculous and uh, uh, foolish American policy, an amoral policy for decade plus. It, it's given Putin all the license he needs to operate the way he does. He, he's faced no real, no no consequences would, that would divert him from his basic path because they are not significant enough to do that. Uh, and I think we're, we're seeing no significant change under Biden. I think the Biden administration now has not had any kind of fundamental rethink about what Putin's about. And I think this is the kind of result you get. He's felt emboldened. And here we are, we're, we're talking about a potential invasion that might be the largest land war in Europe for many generations. So there are a lot of different opinions out there about how the U.S. should uh, handle Russia, and in particular this crisis uh, with the with the Ukraine. Um, and uh, what are so have you encountered some of these views? And uh, what did you think there's merit in any of them? I for sure have not encountered any uh, view that remotely this remotely similar to what you're describing a proper foreign policy should be, but do you think there's merit in any of the other uh, views that are out there right now? There are interesting perspectives out there that I think they're useful as tutorials on how not to approach this issue. They're, they're, they often respond to something real. So, so there's a real push for many people to say, well, we need some kind of diplomacy. And, I'm not disagreeing with that. I'm certainly not arguing we need to go to war. That's the opposite of what I'm saying. We should not be involved in that kind of way. But what a lot of people talk about when they insist on diplomacy is it's often a cover for giving in to Putin's demands in a face-saving kind of way. And that's really not helpful. I mean, that's you could say that what we've been doing up till now for the last decade plus is giving into Putin's demands by not significantly pushing back against him. And the, that to me is just another version of not taking seriously the moral significance of what he's doing and who he is and, and what the consequences of it would be. Uh, so, so that's what I'm kind of, I mean, one, one model that people have been talking about is, well, what if, what if we don't, what if we say Putin don't invade Ukraine, but let's take away Ukraine, Ukraine's sovereignty and, and dial it back. And, and there's this idea that you could replicate what happened to Finland uh, decades ago when it was under the influence of the Soviet regime. It, it was called this idea of Finlandization, where it wasn't really a free country. It wasn't really under its own control, but it wasn't completely under. You can't play with people's lives like that. That's ridiculous and destructive. And it's just going to embolden uh, Putin even further. And then there's one other kind of view that is worth talking about. We, should, we could talk more about these contrasting views in depth, but one other that is really salient is, it was illustrated in an article I read recently in the magazine Persuasion, and it was written under a pseudonym, but by someone who used to work at the State, the, uh, the state Department, and written under a pseudonym presumably because they don't want to admit who they are, or they're not in a position to, to write this thing. And the, the line that leapt out at me 
And I think this is characteristic of State Department things, official foreign policy type thinking, is that the person arguing this was saying, well, let's move away from, quote, crude dichotomies between appeasement of Russia and standing up to evil, unquote. What is, why is that a crude dichotomy? Why is it sophistication to drop moral thinking altogether, and f- which is what this argument was for? And in buying him off without admitting to ourselves, that's what we're buying him. There's no sophistication. It's exactly the opposite. To, to reach a moral assessment and act on it takes both sophistication in terms of thinking, it takes real courage of conviction and integrity to do that. So none, this, this kind of State Department view just is, is a variation on the idea that morality gets in the way of successful action. And that's the opposite of the truth. Morality is the means by which you can succeed in action. It's a tool to help you navigate both in your own life and in in context of policy towards better solutions. And and one I just have to mention in passing, I don't wanna spend a lot of time on it because I don't don't think it deserves a lot of attention, but unfortunately it gets, it's gained, this is the view that Tucker Carlson has been peddling. And Tucker Carlson is a peculiar kind of person because I don't think he's a thinker in any meaningful way, but he has a lot of attention. He, get, he, he gets a lot of people to listen to him. And one of the, the things he said, which I think is, is just bizarre, is that he's been arguing that we should basically side with Russia and that Ukraine, out of the two, Ukraine is actually the dictatorship, which is just not factually even remotely true. I mean, Ukraine has problems, but I don't, if you were gonna use the term dictatorship, it applies more so to Russia than it does to Ukraine. Uh, but to me, this is, if, if this is the kind of leadership, I, I hate to say intellectual leadership, but this is the way people are being uh, guided in their thinking, I think this is destructive. It's just certainly not illuminating. And it's, it's, it, frankly, it's embarrassing that that's the view that he's putting forward. So I don't want to spend a lot of time on that. But, but you see, there's a whole range of views. But the, the common theme I see in them is just get away from thinking in terms of right and wrong, and you'll succeed better. And I'm arguing the opposite. If you want to succeed, you want to gain clarity and, and the real uh, a path towards success, you need to, to think in terms of moral uh, principles, and particularly in moral judgment, objective moral judgment. Um, so now we have a question uh, from YouTube that relates to a question that I want to ask you um, anyway. Uh, the question says, where are the other European countries and why can't they protect their own continent? And let me add uh, a spin on it. So many European, so many people fear that uh, if European countries stand up to Putin, Russia will limit or cut off the supply of energy because many European countries rely on Russia for energy. So uh, what can we learn about this situation as well? I think the wise answer to that is don't put yourself in this position. So the idea that European countries are not doing more is embarrassing. They're the ones who are closest to Russia geographically and therefore more within its reach if it were going to invade and and cause havoc in Europe. So, all the European countries should be far more engaged in this than the United States is. The United States has interests, as I indicate, they're indirect, they're more about the, the ideal of supporting pre- people seeking freedom and deterring an aggressive 
dictator like like Putin. But we're not we're not a, our stakes in this are, are very low comparatively uh, to them. They're the ones who should be thinking about military options. And it is, I think that's part of the the what makes this a fiasco. So if you're Germany or France or England or, or Poland or any of the countries really close by, you should be thinking about this and not taken by surprise. Now, I'm not saying that they're taken by surprise, but it should not be like an afterthought. Oh, what should we do with Putin? I think a lot of the countries there, a lot of people there are really worried and they're right to be. And I think it's a dereliction that we are not seeing them come together and try to, to push back on this. So on the narrow question about the the Russian supply of fuel. Again, I think that's a related kind of problem where this has to do more with the energy policy throughout Europe, which is, I really don't understand why this is the case. I mean, I, I know the reasons, but I, I find it bizarre that they're, instead of seeking nuclear energy, which is clean and, and, and low cost and, and doesn't pollute and, and uh, it's really safe, and would give them the ability not to rely on Russia for, um, for fuel. That seems like an obvious path to take. And in fact, what has happened in Europe is the decommissioning of nuclear plants. I think France had a lot of them for many years. It was a leader in this field. It's moved away from nuclear. And that it shows you how policy inter interrelates. So the, their energy policy has made them more vulnerable to Russian blackmail in a pickle. Maybe blackmail is not the right word, but just uh, coercion through uh, its ability to control the flow of fuel. And so to me, it's, a, it's another example of, you shouldn't put yourself in this position where your main supply of fuel is a country that is gonna use that to uh, its advantage against you. And, and uh, so I'm disappointed in all these countries. There's a lot to be said about European policy. It's a different conversation. But to me, it's, yeah, the, the major responsibility here is on European countries. And it's, I fault them for being, having put themselves in this position over many years and over many years of both foreign policy generally and energy policy in particular. So um, one last question for today. Earlier, uh, towards the beginning of this podcast, you mentioned that one of Putin's concerns uh, in this particular crisis is that Ukraine is an aspiring member, member of NATO. So a question is, um, should NATO actually be expanded? And actually more fundamentally, should, is, is, it, a valuable, uh, is, is it a valuable thing to, to be a part of? Should the US be a part of NATO? I don't think so. I'm not a... a, a a supporter of the idea that NATO should continue beyond its original conception. So as I, I mentioned briefly in passing, NATO was a, an attempt to band together against the threat of the Soviet Union, which was had the stated goal of spreading its political system by revolution and force globally. That, that just, they were never hiding that. That was their goal, and they actually tried to pursue that. So you can understand the idea of an alliance of, of free countries, and that was one of the distinguishing features that allowed people to uh, allowed countries to join it. You can understand the, the rationale for that, and I, I think it was justifiable, or at least much more understandable back then. With the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the, the that threat is no longer there, I don't think the alliance should have continued. It's a good thing if European countries want to create a new alliance to have 
a political means of supporting their own defense, I think that's good. It's not clear why the U.S. needs to be in it. And there are a lot of problems with the fact that the U.S. is both the leading military power in the world and a member of NATO. And then the NATO is predicated on the idea that an attack on one member is an attack on all. So that you can, you can see how that will pull the U.S. into all kinds of conflicts. It hasn't happened that way because it's typically the U.S. that's been the one that has been facing significant attacks. But I think it's, it's a real question why NATO has continued. If it exists, I don't think you should succumb to a dictator's demand that you exclude some country. <laughs> that's the, the, like we're not in a position to dissolve NATO tomorrow. So if it's there and Ukraine wants to join, I don't think you should uh, appease Putin on those grounds. But I don't think the U.S. should be a part of it. I think the, the, the smart thing to do would be to wind that down and find other means for the Europeans to support their own defense. Uh, and I think it's good if it's selective. So I, I would want it to be just a very high standard and there has to be a real alignment of interest, which I think you would need to make sure, otherwise you saddle yourself with burdens you don't want. Good, so that is um, all for today. Um, thanks everyone for joining us and for your super chat donations. And uh, some resources that the audience may want to uh, take a look at to learn more about the topic that we discussed today are Peter Schwartz's book, uh, A Foreign Policy of Self-Interest, A Moral Ideal for America. Also, Leonard Peikoff's talk uh, on the Forehead Forum, Some Notes About Tomorrow, and uh, on Kargate and your, you and your book, uh, uh, Failing to Confront Islamic Totalitarianism, sorry, uh, which we just released a second edition of, and your book, Ilan, uh, What Justice Demands, which analyzes yeah. uh, the Israeli-Palestinian uh, conflict from an objectivist perspective, and it explains more in detail this moral framework that we have, we've discussed today. Yeah, I, I should um, just mention this, that I was just going to say something brief about that. Sorry, Agustina. Uh, the Peter's book definitely talks about Russia in the past and how to think about uh, different regimes. I think that the, the benefit of reading the book on Islamic totalitarianism or the one on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is, is to get the wider perspective of how to think about foreign policy, not necessarily that those books deal with the concrete of Russia and Europe and so forth. But the idea is that people can sort of abstract out of that some of the principles that are relevant. I just wanted to make that clear. Um, so um, for the audience, if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to our channel on YouTube and click the bell to get notifications when we uh, go live or post new videos. And uh, if you're watching the recording, also please like, share, and comment so we can attract uh, new viewers to this podcast. And please consider doing the same if you're watching on Facebook. And if you have any questions, comments, uh, or anything at all about today's episode, uh, please email us at newideal at aynrand.org. We often uh, respond to these messages and we read them all. Um, so with that, thank you, Ilan, for your explanation today and your, your uh, very insightful takes on, the, on this conflict and the way we should generally approach the U.S. Uh, and American foreign policy. And thanks to your audience for joining us, and uh, we'll see you next week. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, 
leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.